I'm Adam Riley. It's Wednesday, July 16th, and you're listening to WGBH News' politics podcast, The Scrum. This week, we're talking about the probation trial, what the Supreme Court's Hobby Lobby ruling means for state politics, and this fall's congressional elections with Kirsten Hughes, the chairman of the Massachusetts GOP. Kirsten, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Also with me today is Scrum regular David Bernstein, a contributing uh, editor at Boston Magazine and our political analyst here at WGBH. David, thanks for being here, as oh, always. Thank you. And Peter Kadz is the senior editor of WGBHnews.org. Hello, Peter. Hey. So let's start out, given how much we have to talk about and that there's four of us in the room, let's start out with your thoughts, Kirsten, on the probation trial and what the state GOP needs to do to make the most of it this fall? Well, uh, earlier uh, in the week, we did a a sort of closing argument talking about the uh, reverberations of this for through till November. And I think it's very interesting when you look at this $250,000 that has flowed to 25 Democrats, um, you know, from probation uh, officials to their campaign coffers. This is really going to cause a problem, I think, for for Democrats as a whole on Beacon Hill, because the argument is there to be made, and and this certainly illustrates it best, that uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and that such a supermajority in Beacon Hill isn't helpful. Kirsten, uh, I'm just curious, because you make the the case, and I I saw the the video that you did and linked to it, uh, but I'm just wondering, because this all came out, you know, in 2010. It was there you know, for the Republicans to try to make hay uh, out of it and make that same argument in that 2010 cycle and in the 2012 cycle. They're all still there, all the Democrats, you know, who are involved in this. Uh, um, Why... How are you going to make it different this time? How are you going to make it resonate this time? Well, I think that the the judge really did that for us in terms of talking about the speaker's role here and really being a, a co-conspirator in um, taking a lot of these bribes for his speakership. And I think the case is is easier to be made when you look at this is the fourth speaker in a row, really, in, in, for the state house that it, it sees a, a major scandal, you know. And um, so this corruption on top of corruption. But will the party try to make that stick? I mean, traditionally, you know, Bill Weld, Mitt Romney um, won the governorship in the large part by running against Beacon Hill. Even Deval Patrick, some people forget, ran against the legislature. Um, Yeah, can you tie it into like a Martha Coakley or a a Steve Grossman? Well, sure. Martha Coakley has been on that watch as the the state's top cop. She took a pass on on doing anything about this probation department uh, scandal. She uh, didn't really do the tough work at looking at folks in her own party. And I think that that is due in large part to her own political ambitions, which we've certainly seen her uh, take steps on. Actually, let me jump in for one second. Okay, go ahead. ahead. How much does your ability to, to use this to the party's benefit how much does it depend on a guilty uh, finding? I mean, if, if everyone is found not guilty and people are talking about Carmen Ortiz, the U.S. attorney, overreaching, uh, then does it become less of an asset for the GOP? No, because it looks at the ethics on Beacon Hill, and I, I think that's really what's under fire here. Uh, certainly juries and judges uh, look at a different standard um, in terms of the law and, and the legal arguments there, but what the voters of Massachusetts are tasked with is looking at the ethical implications of this, and, and I think that, you know, uh, win, lose, or draw um, on the uh, 
prosecution of this case, that's clear. And, and there are serious ethical problems stemming from the fact that there is an a lopsided supermajority of Democrats on Beacon Hill. But the the the, the man who presides over that lopsided supermajority, mm-hmm. and I must say, as a truly independent voter, that the size of that majority bothers me. But can we expect the GOP, or can we expect um, uh, Charlie Baker to to lit out after DeLeo personally for? presiding over this presumably, you know, den of corruption. Well, I think you have to look at the candidates in each district. And the question we asked the other day was, did your rep, did your senator tell the speaker and the the Senate president, this is unacceptable, this isn't okay. And you have to go back to those individual uh, folks in your district, in your Senate district, in your House district, and say, did you stand up to leadership and say, this is wrong? And if they didn't, that's something that individual voters in that district have to hold them accountable for. And I think candidates in those districts also have to point that out, and I think you'll see them do that. No, but that's understood on the district level. I'm I'm talking about at the higher level for the statewide offices. Will, could we expect people going after Speaker DeLeo? I mean, he's a big target. No, absolutely. And I think that you're going to see the statewide, Charlie Baker, Karen Polito, go out there and talk about, again, this one-sided supermajority and the fact that there needs to be a check and balance. And and the way we've been able to offset that in the past is a a uh, gubernatorial-led Republican administration. So it sounds like you're saying, if I read you right in response to Peter, that you're not going to hear Charlie Baker saying, um, you know, you've all seen what happens when Speaker DeLeo and people like him are allowed to run amok on Beacon Hill. You're not going to hear words like that coming out of Baker's mouth, but you will hear them, him talking about structural disparities. Look at all the Democrats in the State House. Look at the paucity of Republicans. Here's why we have to change this. Well, you'll have to ask Charlie Baker what he's going to say. I know you don't but, script him, but um, it sounds like I that was your prediction. But, but, but I think that that's right. I mean, that's out there in, in the discussion is, is the talk about, you know, the lopsided problems on Beacon Hill. And even, you know, Peter, you, you mentioned as a truly independent voter. And, and I think that the majority of, of folks in Massachusetts will see that as independents and say, there's a problem here and we need to fix it. Do you think, uh, you know, you talked about whether the Democrats did enough to stand up uh, to Bobby DeLeo, but did the Republicans, uh, you know, and and I know that they're a small, a small voice, but there's also contention within that group uh, of whether that their leadership has been as effective as it could be and talk about possibly, you know, replacing Brad Jones. Uh, what do you think? Did the Republicans in uh, the House and the Senate do enough to speak up at the time that this was going on? I think Republicans do what they can, again, citing that that, that small minority of legislators. As, as you point out, this went back to 2010 when we had 15 state reps uh, in the House. And in 2010, happy to say that we more than doubled those numbers. And, and so I think you have seen a change from 2010 in the, um, the, the vocal quality of that uh, representation. Any uh, any more questions? Sorry, I gave a very ambiguous uh, physical hand signal here in the studio that no one could see. Any questions uh, from you, David, or you, Peter, or any points, Kirsten, that you didn't get to make before we move on to the next topic? No, I just want to say I'm great that Peter doesn't say his ours because I don't either. And it is so hard. No, you for totally me to... did. You just said it. I don't I know, either. Well, right? I, well, I, I you know, I, I I I'm very conscious of it. So now I'm totally going to let it go. Excellent. Oh yeah. All right, good. All right. That, that, so, that's, that's better for for Massachusetts audience. Anyway, they, you know. My mother gets mad at me when I don't say I'm sorry. Come on, you're down in Quincy. You never hear them hear down there. <laughs> never. All right, let's never. see that uh, play out in our next topic, which is 
Charlie Baker and the Hobby Lobby decision, the way Baker responded to it, the way the Democrats responded to it, the way Baker then, I think it's fair to say, backtracked a little bit. Just uh, by way of a quick recap, Charlie Baker initially said the great thing about this decision is it's not really going to affect anyone here in Massachusetts. Democrats went nuts. It was like catnip to them. They said, oh, look at Charlie Baker. He's you know, not attuned to the needs of women. Uh, he doesn't care about women's contraceptive care. Uh, Baker then uh, shortly after said, actually, I was wrong there. You know, a small number of people might be accepted, uh, pardon me, affected. We need to take steps to make sure that they're uh, covered as well, contraceptively speaking. Oh, and by the way, I'm staunchly committed to women's rights to contraceptive access. With that awkward overview out of the way, uh, how much do you think Charlie Baker, the likely mass GOP uh, candidate for governor, was hurt by this back and forth, if you, if you think he was hurt at all? Well, time will tell, I, I think. But I think the fact that Charlie is a, a pro-choice candidate, he is very respectful and, and has you know, talked often about women's women's health and and um, you know reached out to uh, to that to that group and in, in, in the past couple of days and you know talked about the importance of uh, you know making sure that that that's all available. I don't you know I don't see any problem for for Charlie going forward with that. So I think David here goes a little bit further than you. David Bernstein wrote at Boston Magazine that he thought the Democrats might actually be hurting themselves with their extremely enthusiastic response. Well, it, it's I mean, it's six one and a half dozen other in a sense, because obviously the Democrats want to gin up their base um, and they've got, you know, there are a lot of uh, um, women and men, but particularly, you know, sort of that, that single women um, and, and younger professional women who uh, this is a very important issue to. And and, and are going to vote Democratic, but this may gin them up to actually get to the polls. Um, but on the other hand, it, you know, we've seen here where the Democrats have overplayed their hand uh, at times. Uh, I, I mentioned in that piece that you, that you were talking about, uh, Scott Brown, um, you know, they went after Scott Brown um, in that uh, initial Senate race. On, against Martha Coakley. Yeah, against Martha Coakley on some of these uh, these issues and really, I, I think, overplayed their hands and and made some of the sort of independent but democratic-leaning uh, Catholic voters in particular, some, some of the sort of Southie voters, Worcester voters. Uh, Quincy voters. Uh, <laughs> Quincy voters, quite a few. Um, sort of open to the idea that maybe the Democrats are too liberal. Is that, is that part of the, the sort of pushback at all, that, 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 that Charlie Baker and Karen Polito are in the middle on this and, and the one at the extreme is going to be someone like a Martha Coakley? Well, I think there's two takeaways that that I that come to my mind. Number one, you can't make Charlie Baker into something he's not. And number two, you know, as a woman who thinks of herself as a professional, not not necessarily single anymore, uh, and definitely not necessarily young anymore. Um, but uh, you know, I'm insulted by the thought or the uh, talking point that they seem to push that that's all I care about is is women's health and women's reproductive rights, and I get up every morning thinking that I care about putting food on the table and uh, going out to work every day and bringing home money. And, and I think most women, you know, feel the same way. You, you know, how in the long run, um, I, 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 I agree with David that I thought the Democrats overplayed the hand. I was on the press conference where they were going um, at it. And, you know, Charlie bumbled a little, but look, he's essentially a pro-choice candidate. And I, I think come time, you know, come November, that, that'll be pretty clear. What I would worry about if I were in your shoes is how, how do the, the non-crazy people in your party 
escape. <laughs> and unfortunately, they're not all non-crazy. How do the okay, non-crazy... Kirsten's facial reactions are off the record. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do the more traditional Republicans... Um, keep distance from the craziness uh, of the National Party. You know, I mean, the guilt by association, sorry, the, the, the guilt by association troubles me. I mean, and one more thing. Years ago in Rhode Island, the Republican Party used to be almost the Reform Party because it was a very Rhode Island party. Um, so, notice I got the D in Rhode Island in there. <laughs> Rhode Island. Um, now the, the the Rhode Island party is almost as kooky as the national party. So maybe to sum up, how does Charlie Baker avoid uh, Charlie, having Todd Aiken uh, tied around his in, in the party in general? The state well, brand think, versus the national. Party. Well, I think if you if you look at we'll look at some of our our congressional candidates, Richard to say certainly not somebody who you would think of in, in terms of you know the national Republican line. I mean, I think these candidates it's on them to make the difference and make the case to voters that they are not uh, labeled with a sticker that that does not uh, comport with uh, people's values. And no, but, but, but to say um, what was pretty successfully branded a Republican the last time out. I mean, I, re- I remember watching the race and thinking, geez, he's, you know, not as... He's not as rabid, but but keep going. I mean, it's it's an interesting point. I just think that's your big challenge. My, well, I you know I've crisscrossed the state, talked to obviously several Republicans. We talked earlier before we started about my election as chairman, and certainly you know there are some divisions within the party as there are in the Democratic Party. Uh, True, but in essence, people are concerned that because of that sort of division, we've let people like Elizabeth Warren or Deval Patrick have two terms. Elizabeth Warren be elected, and I think people are are saying, you know what, we may not agree on every single issue down the line, but for the most part, we are in agreement that, you know, this uh, tax and spend policy in Massachusetts stop. I want to just jump in here for one second to push back at something that I think I've heard from all three of you in one shape or form, which is the yeah, idea the that, that the Democrats <laughs> uh, in going after Charlie Baker the way they did in the wake of his first comments about Hobby Lobby, you know, sort of ran a risk uh, or, you know, ran a risk of shooting themselves in the foot. Um, you mentioned the example of Mitt Romney using um, abortion uh, to, to good effect against right. Shannon O'Brien and Martha Coakley losing when she and the right. Dems right. went after Brown in that first Senate race. But my recollection is that in the Elizabeth Warren-Scott Brown race, that Warren and the Dems really used these issues to their advantage. And we have a little bit of sound from a debate between Brown and Warren at mm-hmm. WGBY in Springfield, which I think gets at what I'm talking about. Let's take a listen. He's had exactly one chance to vote uh, for equal pay for equal work, and he voted no. He had exactly one chance to vote for insurance coverage for birth control and other preventive services for women. He voted no. And he had exactly one chance to vote for a pro-choice woman from Massachusetts to the United States Supreme Court, and he voted no. Well... (laughs) She uh, she certainly mischaracterized so many things in that debate, and I think this is one of the prime examples of that. I mean, the, quote, Paycheck Fairness Act had nothing to do with paycheck fairness, and that is something that Democrats did in 2012 that they are not going to be able to do in Massachusetts in 2014. There is not an Obama at the top of the ticket. These issues are not in play in Massachusetts. And, uh, again, you can't make 
Charlie Baker into something he's not. But the contraception and abortion issue is, uh, to an extent, thanks to the Supreme Court. I'm just saying, and by the way, I, again, I want to... And I think Charlie's I, been, cl- he's been yeah, clear on right, his position on that. Right. And, and, and that's, that's different. Now, distorting someone's record in a debate is, is not the same thing, um, you know, in, as, as talking about uh, what they're doing in a campaign for Charlie and something uh, like that. Well, what is the, you know, what are the two or three issues that are really going to matter? After Labor Day, when people, sane people, start paying attention. Uh, Jobs in the economy. People want to live and work in Massachusetts, and the only way to do that is to get some control in state government. I also think, again, maybe the probation department uh, trial, it will be over, but the important thing is the 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 appearance of impropriety and the ethical problems with a supermajority on Beacon Hill. There is great uh, evidence out there, as we've seen in the past 20 years, of electing Republican governors, and people feel that that check and balance is important, and I think that that's going to be in play in November. But again, the economy and jobs, getting Massachusetts back to work where it should be. I'm sorry. Uh, No, I just wanted to to move on to um, the congressional, because those are key issues, and like you've just been saying, the, the, the gubernatorial race may be able to sort of isolate itself off from the kinds of national issues that that hurt Scott Brown. But when you talk about a Richard Tisay uh, or a John Chapman or whoever wins the nomination down in, dis- uh, in the Ninth District, um, those are going to be in play. And I-, I have to tell you, you know, I was surprised in 2010, which was a big opportunity year for, for the Republicans, but there weren't a lot of strong candidates to take advantage. Um, and then this year, it seems like there's even fewer. I mean, you've got six districts where you don't have candidates at all. Um, it, is this Was this a failing of the party in terms of recruitment? It's easy for people to, to think that on the outside. But the truth of the matter is, is, you know, it takes time to build a party to get candidates to run congressionally, right? I mean, it, you know, it, it, the Scott Browns out there of the world was not just a happening all of a sudden, right? He was a town assessor. He was a state rep, state senator. And so it takes time to build candidates from that local level. But I'm happy to say that since I took over the chairmanship, oh, these many, a uh, year and a half ago, um, <laughs> we have spent money and resources in the those local races, which for the most part, Massachusetts are nonpartisan, but you can believe that the other side doesn't see them as nonpartisan and they are growing levels. And and so as somebody who serves at a local level, uh, we have put more resources into that because you need those quality candidates. And we do have great candidates in congressional districts. Richard, you you, you mentioned we have a four-way primary down in the ninth. Richard Tissé, obviously, in the sixth, though. Um, but, you know, it takes time to grow that over a few years. It's not going to happen in one cycle. No, I, I actually, and I'll let uh, Peter jump in with a question, but but I actually, you know, I mean, I was playing devil's advocate there a little I bit. But I, but, I, <laughs> but, I, but I actually think that it's a smart move and one that, that you know, the Republican Party, um, you know, is smart to do and hasn't been successful at a lot of time. But, but I wonder, um, uh, you know, it, doesn't it start you need the win at the top? So it doesn't, uh, you know, the... The real focus has to be there. You need the win at the top for the rest of it to, to happen. But but I, I'm sorry, I cut off uh, Peter. No, no. I, I was just going to ask, uh, you know, following up on David, how many more seats in the state legislature, you know, in total, or you could break it down to House and Senate, how many more seats 
do you think the Republican Party needs to be able to um, exert some restraining influence that's effective? I mean, right now, you don't have it. No, that's true. I mean, you know, it takes 54 for a veto-sustaining yeah. majority. And so um, right now we have uh, 29. We, we had, a you know, one person leave, Don Humpson, to, to go to the Senate. So, uh, and we have four in, in the Senate. Uh, you know, we're getting there, and I, I feel confident that in, in 14 we will pick up more Senate seats uh, and some more state rep seats. I know folks are working hard, but, you know, it, it is progress, not perfection. As we said, 2010, 15 state reps. We more than doubled the number in 2010, and I expect us to pick up seats in both the House and the Senate this time. And, and we're getting closer. The louder our voices are, the, the, the better off we are. And again, having that balance with a Charlie Baker in the governor's seat. Other than balance, what, what's the issue? In, I, I realize it must vary from district to district, but what resonates? You know, what, what gives you hope? The gas tax, the the tying everything to the gas tax is is an important thing for our candidates because, uh, you know, that truly is an example of representation, you know, of taxation without representation, right? But, but I mean, how does that, I got to ask you, how does that phrase apply here? Because representatives were elected who are creating this tax. So how is that well, it's tied to, right? It's not the fact of the tax that that's being challenged here. It's the, the tying it to inflation and the fact that that never has to come up before gotcha. the legislature again. And, and that's really the opposition. And that's where people get angry that, you know, these folks don't have to take a vote. Most of the time, they don't even debate on Beacon Hill about these important things. So that frustrates people. But I think the, the gas tax is a perfect example that hits people in their wallet. It's not the three cents you pay today. It's the inflated price should pay without, you know, holding anybody accountable over the next six or seven years. Uh, we've already kept Kirsten, I think, longer than we told her we were going to. But i got to throw one final question at you. Sure. Uh, there have been one or two allusions in the course of this conversation to internal tensions within the mass GOP. I'm wondering how problematic you think any internal tensions are going to be as you guys seek to capture the corner office in the fall. Oh, look, everybody Everybody squabbles. We're a family where there's always fighting at the table amongst the kids. And uh, this is just... Who are the kids and who are the grown-ups? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not telling. <laughs> um, but look, again, it's a family squabble. We'll settle it internally. But all I see are people uh, across the state interested in electing Charlie Baker and, and Republicans at every level of state and federal government. Kirsten Hughes, thank you for being here. Can we get you to come back during the uh, campaign season? I hope you do. I, I was I was scared of all of you together, but this is not as bad <laughs> as I thought. <laughs> all right, that's going to do it for the Scrum Podcast this week. Thank you for joining us, Kirsten Hughes, David Bernstein, and Peter Kadzis. Great to have you on, Kirsten. <laughs> Kirsten Hughes is the chairman of the Massachusetts Republican Party. David Bernstein is a contributing editor at Boston Magazine and our WGBH political analyst. And Peter Kadzis is the senior editor of WGBHnews.org. You can check out more from the Scrum on our blog at blogs.wgbh.org slash scrum. And remember, you can now subscribe to the Scrum podcast in iTunes. I'm Adam Riley. Our engineer is Alan Mattis. And our producer is Abby Ruzica. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Baby,